underground bananas, the best empanadas for a hike, and the incredible Birdman contest. This week, we're on Easter Island. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're on the remote island of Rapa Nui. My guest is Shafik Medji. Shafik is a travel writer who has written guidebooks for destinations all over the world, and he's written several articles about Easter Island. Shafik's been on the podcast before. We had a great time talking to him about Buenos Aires and Argentina on episodes 103 and 117. There's links to both those programs in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED132. Now, on this episode, you'll notice I use the names Easter Island and Rapa Nui almost interchangeably. And that's because Easter Island is the European name for the place, and the indigenous people call it Rapa Nui. And Shafik and I talk about the famous Moai statues of Rapa Nui that you've surely seen on TV before. They're the giant stone statues. Uh, We also talk about something called the Birdman Contest, which I have to say is one of the most incredible stories I've heard on the podcast. And we talk food, too, including bananas grown underground, all the different ways to eat, the taro root, and cooking on hot stones, which leads to a great conversation about the similarities between several Polynesian islands. Destination, eat, drink. Shafik, welcome back to Destination, eat, drink. It's great to have you back on the program. Glad you're doing well and uh, good to talk to you again. Oh, Brent, I'm, uh, it's a real pleasure to be, uh, to be back and talking to you again. Well, I wanted to have you on to talk about Easter Island because you've written a few articles about Easter Island. You've also written a guidebook about Easter Island. So um, I think first things first, let's get our bearings a little bit. Folks may not know where exactly is Easter Island and how do you get there? Yeah, so Easter Island, um, to cut it short, is a long way from anywhere else. Um, (laughs) It's one of the most uh, remotest inhabited places on Earth, it's um, it's roughly three thousand five hundred kilometers west of mainland Chile. Uh, its nearest inhabited neighbour is tiny island of Pitcairn, which is um, more than two thousand kilometers to the west. Uh, so, to put that in context, uh, you could drive from New York to Miami, and you'd still have to go some wow. uh, to uh, to cover the equivalent distance. Um, and it's absolutely tiny. I can't emphasise that that enough. It's only one hundred sixty three square kilometers in size. The the populations less than 8,000 people. So it's a real, it's a tiny triangular speck of volcanic land adrift in the Pacific. Made by a volcano in the Pacific, like other Pacific volcanic islands, we think of Hawaii or New Zealand or things like that. Um, Now, Easter Island is called Easter Island, I read, because uh, Europeans landed there on Easter Sunday. But of course, the native population doesn't call it Easter Island. They call it uh, Rapa Nui. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's right. So, so, so of the um, of the around eight thousand people that live on on Easter Island, um, around almost a half are indigenous Rapa Nui. So the people are called Rapa Nui, and they also um, 
call the call the island Rapa Nui. Uh, the the European uh, name name for it is Easter Island because the first European contact, which was with a Dutch navigator, took place in 1722 on Easter Sunday, uh, and that was uh, yeah the, the the start of a uh, a turbulent uh, period in the uh, in the island's history. Thing that people are most familiar with on Easter Island or Rapa Nui are these giant carved figures, human-looking figures on Easter Island that dot around the island uh, called the Moai, I think is how you pronounce it, M-O-A-I, Moai. Talk a little bit about them because they're so mysterious and fascinating still. Well, really, the, the, the Moai was the, the start of my fascination with Easter Island, I'm sure with I'm sure that's the same for many. As, as a child, I visited the British Museum uh, near my home in London, and I remember standing in front of one of the Moai, these Easter Island statues, and being fascinated by it, being dwarfed by it, and uh, uh, being desperate to see it in, in, in situ and see it on the island. And um, yeah, it, it, it's an absolutely incredible part of uh, Easter Island Rapa Nui culture. There's around a thousand Moai on the island. Um, and uh, to put it simply, it's a form of ancestor worship. The, uh, the statues represent illustrious ancestors, who watch over their uh, their descendants? Um, they're made from uh, uh, a material called tuff, which is a rock of compacted volcanic ash. Uh, you can visit the quarry, uh, which is Ranu Waraku, uh, on the island. And uh, and according to local lore traditions, um, after they were carved in situ at the quarry, they walked uh, using their mana, which is to say their spiritual energy, to sites around the island. Oh, cool. Um, the 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 more scientific and perhaps less interesting uh, explanation for it is that they were transported on um, either wooden sledges or they were swiveled along using ropes, mm. um, which, if you can imagine, may have given the impression that they uh, they walked uh, in inverted commas. Um, that would have been amazing to see, <laughs> moving these guys with ropes, kind of jiggling them back and forth. Absolutely. If, if, if you go on YouTube, you can actually see some um, uh, some, some more modern attempts to to um, to both raise the statues. Uh, you know, th- th- you know, they weigh tens and tens of tons in some cases. So these are huge, huge items. Um, but yeah, you can see videos of, of 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 modern islanders and others raising the statues and moving them from from um, place to place. And you and you really get a sense of not just the skill of the artisans, the master carvers that actually made them, but also the um, you know really the ordinary people on Rapa Nui that actually moved them. You know, tens, twenties of kilometres to uh, to put to put them in the, in, in the sites, and really seeing them on the island um, has a huge impact. I mean, m- many of us would have seen them in museums around the world. They're in they're in the US or mainland Chile. They're in in here in the UK, but seeing them in situ where they where they were made, where they have uh, real spiritual and cultural uh, resonance, uh, is is an absolutely mind blowing experience. I guess I didn't realize how many of these there are. You said there's a thousand, over a thousand Moai on the island itself, plus the ones that are scattered around the world in museums. So when we go to Easter Island, are they just out there in the open? Do we see them everywhere we go? They're out there in the wild, as if as if you were going on safari, you would you 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 would spot them. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they're, they're dotted all around all around the island. 
Um, the, the, the biggest sites, something like Ahu Tongariki, which I'm sure many people have seen images on. It's, um, it's the largest ceremonial platform in Polynesia. It's about 220 meters long. And on that platform are 15 colossal moai. Uh, the largest is 30 tons. And it's the best place to watch the, the sunrise on the island because the sun rises out of the Pacific, uh, behind them and illuminates them and it's an, an incredible sight but that's just one of many many sites and if you if you walk around if you if you take a tour if you cycle or ride uh, you'll come across them everywhere um, some are in a better state of repair than than others um, if you go to the quarry at uh, Ranu Waraku which is where most of the moai were made you can see them in various stages of um, of construction um, and also you can see the, see different periods of, of uh, moai building kind of the, the the simpler more 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 um, less elaborate statues from the earlier periods and then and then later on they can get steadily uh, uh, steadily more more elaborate but essentially wherever you go on the island um, you're never too far from a moai and they also have a famous museum on Rapa Nui the Rapa Nui museum talk a little bit about that because they have some really fascinating exhibits there as well i mean this is this is one of my favorite museums in 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 the world and i have a privilege to go to quite a lot of them it's very small it's just on a headland uh, near the uh, near the only the only town on the island which is angaroa um but it has some incredible incredible um uh, pieces there's a rare female moai most of the Moai, the overwhelming majority of the Moai on the uh, the island are, are male. Um, you have some Moai eyes, which are made from white coal and kind of a piercing red uh, rock called scoria. And there's also um, lots and lots of exhibits on other aspects of the culture on, uh, on Rapa Nui that people may not be familiar with, such as the Birdman contest, such as the, uh, the lost script of Wongo Wongo. And there's lots of um, history and background on, um, on the people and the culture. And, uh, you know, unique is a word that I tend to be banned from using in my travel writing <laughs> by my editors, but I can use it freely and uh, prolifically with Easter Island because it, 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 it genuinely is a unique place and has a unique culture. So I want to talk about those things that you mentioned there, but I want to go back just for a second, Shafik, because you mentioned the uh, carved eyes in the Moai. And this was striking to me when I saw pictures of this because it immediately took me to New Zealand, where I've seen some very similar uh, eye carvings in uh, local Maori art. And it just... it. It just makes me think, you know, these are all descendants of Polynesian people and they spread out all over the Pacific. And I talk about this when I talk about Hawaii, when I talk about New Zealand, when I talk, you know, all these places, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Europeans were crossing the Atlantic, the Polynesians were doing this incredible navigation throughout this whole area. And this is why it strikes me that this is all completely interconnected. Um, these folks from Easter Island to New Zealand and up to Hawaii and, and lots of other places as well. Absolutely. I mean, th th there's lots of commonalities across, across the Pacific and across Polynesia and, um, with the language, with various aspects of the culture, with the, with the cuisine, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later, you can, you can see commonalities. 
And I, I think there's something that, I mean, I've, I've been very lucky to have been to East Ryland three times. And every time, each time I go, I learn more and more about the history and the culture. And one of the things that always strikes me is, it's so incredibly impressive, is the initial settlement, um, which generally is estimated to have taken place between 800 and 1200 AD. And these Polynesian navigators, uh, so they probably originated in the Marquesas or Gambia archipelagos, and they sailed for thousands of miles across the uncharted ocean, often very, very difficult conditions, even today, in these double-hulled canoes, bringing with them the sustenance um, that they needed not just to survive the journey, but also to uh, to, to build a new a new settlement. Yeah, it's, it's not really a round trip. You ain't going back. <laughs> you know, once you land, you are there. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can and East Island is obviously only one example of this. You can see this across um, uh, across Polynesia, and you can see it, you know, particularly in places like New Zealand with the Maori culture, obviously in Hawaii as well. And I think off, uh, over over the years, over the centuries. This kind of element has, has often been a, a little bit underplayed um, in the West. So it, 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 it's kind of it's something really, really interesting to, to gain a kind of deeper understanding of today. Yeah, I just think, uh, you know, we flew from Hawaii to New Zealand. It took nine hours. I was beat by the end of the trip. <laughs> and then it's like you think of the, 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 the weeks and the months that these folks took and they didn't have maps. They didn't have compass, but they were expert navigators at looking at uh, stars, at sea currents, at migrations of animals, whether they're uh, sea life or birds. Um I did want to talk to you, Shafik, before we get into food. I did want to talk to you because you wrote so movingly and so interestingly about the Birdman contest on uh, Easter Island. Tell, tell our audience a little bit about that, please. So, so the Birdman contest, I have to give you a bit of background first. So essentially in the, um, in the 18th century, this is around the time of the first European contact, um, and into the, uh, the 19th century, there was, there was a lot of, a lot of um, conflicts on the island between different warring factions, probably probably the result of scarcity of food and other resources. Um, and during this period, the Moai were toppled. Um, so all of them were knocked to the ground, or almost all of them were knocked, yeah. knocked, to, the, knocked to the ground. And there was really a crisis of religious faith. Anyway, at, at, towards the end of these, these conflicts, the various warring factions came together and decided that they needed to develop a new set of uh, religious and political beliefs to help restore order. And what they came up with uh, was the Birdman Contest. And this was a competition that took place every spring, and it coincided with the return of the migratory seabirds to nest on the island. Uh, so each clan would put forward an athletic young man who competed to claim the first uh, sooty turn egg of the season from an islet that's just offshore. Um, and then they would have to return to East Island with the egg intact to a ceremonial village uh, named Awongo, which you can visit today. Uh, and the winner's chief was then named the Birdman, and they had spiritual authority over the island for uh, for the year ahead. So I, 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 I like to think of it in probably a very redactive way as kind of an epic Ironman triathlon. <laughs> um, you know, this, this would involve uh, hiking up to a volcanic crater. You would have to then scale down these real sheer 300-meter cliffs. You would have to swim through shark-infested water. You would have to clamber up to a rocky islet. 
maybe have to camp out uh, in, in the open for several weeks. Then you would have to compete with all your competitors and then make it back um, to the to the island. So um, these were incredible physical physical feats. And this contest uh, lasted for about 150 years or so. Um, it, it finally ended in the 1860s, by which time there'd been increasing European contacts, which had had a really really a devastating impact on the um on the indigenous population it's seen um slave raids it's seen infectious diseases that had that had, had a huge impact it's seen colonization missionaries and and so on but uh but this contest is 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 really a fascinating insight kind of into the developing culture of, of the island. You can find out lots about it on in the, in the museum. But one of the things I always recommend visitors to, to East Ryan to do is to hike the Birdman Trail, which leads from the, the only town on the island up up to the um, uh, a volcanic crater named Rano Cow, which is one of the most spectacular places on the island. And then you can follow a path round to, uh, to, the, uh, to the ruins of the ceremonial village, uh, which is named Arongo, and it's a really uh, it gives you a really nice insight into uh, into into the into the contest, and uh, also gets you uh, uh, gives you a bit of exercise as well. <laughs> Am I understanding this correctly, Shafik, That they not only have to retrieve the egg, but then they have to swim and bring the egg intact back to the island. Yeah, that, that's that's correct. If, if, in the museum, you can see how they did this, and there, there were um, kind of an essential, almost like a headdress type thing that was that was used to fasten the the egg onto their heads, oh and thus keep it above the uh, above the water and and and, and safe for the. Uh, for the for the journey so it's um it's it's it, i mean it's it's an absolutely it's a mind-boggling uh contest really if if you, if you go to the the, the ruined village of Awongo today which which i've done it's incredibly uh windswept um kind of you know open to the elements place and if you gaze down the down the cliffs of the churning water below let alone to think that there could have been sharks there present <laughs> right. and, and just trying, just trying to you know think how someone could not just clamber down and go to the island but then would have to you know compete and race to make it back up um yeah it, it, it it's hard to believe but uh, yeah as i said it has been it was documented for around 150 years or so i i would definitely be the guy who would drop the egg within the last 50 yards you know i'd go through this whole thing and then i'd end up dropping the egg <laughs> and some other guy would win the birdman contest undoubtedly and that must have happened. That must have happened as well. Oh, I mean, how would you feel? Devastating. Yeah, heartbreaking. So let's talk about the food of uh, Easter Island because, you know, it's so remote. They they have to, uh, you know, all these islands. I mean, Hawaii is remote. A lot of these islands are remote. But Easter Island, because it's so small, must have had its own difficulty in producing enough food for their inhabitants. What is agriculture like on the island? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, food and scarcity of food has always been um, a big issue on the island, and many people, uh, many academics, believe that it was closely linked to the um, to the conflicts that racked the island um, prior to the Birdman contest that um, that has been much written about ever ever since. 
And uh, yeah, but it, 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 it's it's a more complicated, like, like many things on Eastwind, it's, it's more complicated than uh, than often our image of it is. So we talked a bit about the um, the the uh, Polynesian navigators who sailed across from Eastern Polynesia to settle um, Eastwind originally. They brought with them uh, tubers and root vegetables, things like taro, things like yam, cassava, sweet potatoes. They brought lots of the uh, mm. the um, the crops with them, and they also took advantage of what was available on the island. Now, one of these um, one of these things, or one element of this, are lava tubes. As I mentioned before, like much of Polynesia, it's a volcanic island, and these lava tubes have kind of formed caves. Um, underground subterranean worlds that are sheltered from the uh, shelter that have a sheltered climate, often slightly warmer, gather water, and these were used uh, for many, many um, different, different, different uh, activities, including including growing growing fruits. And so, if you visit today, you can um, you can clamber through these little subterranean worlds, and you can see uh, banana trees growing. Uh, you can see guavas, papayas. Um, taro and so on. Um, so they really, they really made full use of what was often quite a difficult, a difficult environment. These lava tubes were also used to collect water. Now, water is obviously a big, um, uh, fresh, fresh drinking water is a uh, can be a challenge on many of the many of the islands of Polynesia, and it, and it was the case in Easter Island. So these lava tubes were also used to to gather and store rainwater and it's something like that that gives you a real insight into um into really how hard people had to work and um you know had to work until quite recently really you talk about these lava tubes and i'm envisioning something like a cave but it can't be completely dark you've got to have light in order to grow these things Where, where's the light coming from yeah it, it's essentially if you, if you imagine a cave and then the 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 roof of the cave or parts of the roof of the cave have collapsed, okay. so they're kind of semi semi open to the um, to the outside to, to 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 the elements. But nevertheless, they're still sheltered from the wind, um, yeah, able to gather gather water, and often kind of feel a little bit warmer, which you can feel if you if you clamber about in them. You can you can immediately feel that there's a change in temperature. So um, so these are often yeah, as I said, used as, used as nurseries. They're also used as shelters for. For, for the islanders during periods of conflict as well. So they were very multifunctional areas. You mentioned taro, um, and taro is, you know, when we lived in Hawaii for a little while, we saw taro all the time. Um, do they make, how, how do they serve taro? I don't know if they have poi there or not. Uh, I imagine that was just developed in Hawaii, but maybe it was developed in Polynesia and brought over to uh, Rapa Nui. What, what is uh, taro as far as the eating on Easter Island? It's used in all manner of, or almost as many ways as you can think to cook it. That's how it's used. And, and it's the same for yam and cassava and sweet potatoes as well. So you get it baked, fried, um, you get it in savoury dishes most commonly, but there's also some desserts. There's a dessert that's made from minced taro, which is then boiled in milk and honey, and it's served cold, so it's kind of semi semi set. Um, cassava also used for sweet for some sweet things as well. Um, there's a sponge cake called uh, poe, which is um, kind of sweet and fluffy and sold in uh, sold in many of the shops around there. But classically, you will you 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 get it as a savoury accompaniment for for fish typically, but also for 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 meat dishes. Um, yeah, and it's and it's an essential part of uh, the local diet. 
When we lived in Hawaii, I was never a huge fan of poi, but one way that taro was prepared that I really liked was, uh, and it's probably my Western sensibility, was uh, they made taro chips, uh, deep fried in oil, crispy, and then salted. And that was one of my favorite things to have. And, and, and you get very similar things, and also with uh, cassava and sweet potatoes as well in, uh, on Easter Island. I mean, I, 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 I think kind of wherever crops like taro are used, um, because you really have to kind of put a lot of flavor into them. You have to make them as tasty as, as possible. Right, right. People get creative and often frying them, you know, like with many things, frying always adds, uh, <laughs> adds a good deal of flavor to them. Makes everything better, right? It let's, does indeed. Let's talk about the uh, UMA, U-M-A, U-M-A um, which, uh, again, we talk about a Polynesian uh, influence. This reminds me of the Hangi in New Zealand, uh, talk about how what an uma is. It's the same same kind of principles to dishes that are find, found across uh, Polynesia, and interestingly, a bit further afield as well. Um, it's a it's a very traditional communal meal. It's often used for family events and for special occasions. Um, if you visit the island, um, there's a couple of the restaurants that will will do them uh, do an uma two or three times a week. And I'd really encourage, uh, encourage you to, um, to take advantage of it. How it works is a, uh, there's an earthen pit is dug and it's filled with firewood and then rocks. And these are volcanic rocks, which then heat up until they're red hot. And then you have a layer of banana leaves placed on top. And on top of them, a layer of fish, chicken, meat, uh, then a layer of vegetables. This is typically taro, sweet potatoes, cassava, that kind of thing. Uh, and then that layer is covered with banana leaves Earth is piled on top, and then uh, everything is allowed to slow cook for uh, for many many hours, um, and it's an absolutely uh, delicious delicious dish. Um, yeah, and it's often used for festivities, for celebrations, um, and when you tuck into it, it's a really uh, it it gives you another really good insight into the uh, into the local culture, and it's just a fun event. So, how would we experience something like this on Easter Island? Do is it? well known is it advertised or do you have to know somebody if you know someone and you can get invited to a private meal that is absolutely the uh, the uh, the best way to experience it but realistically the the, the way you will experience it is is um uh, through one of uh, one of a couple of restaurants that that put them on spe- cook and room especially a couple of times two or three times a week because um, it takes a lot of preparation as you can imagine to do it so they can't do it every day um, and you may have to organize this in advance and book it in advance. But it's very easy to do. And uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely the best way to uh, to experience it when you're on the island. And, you know, you talked about the small population. I think you said, Shafik, 8,000 people live on Rapa Nui. Are, is there an infrastructure in place? Because they get all kinds of tourists. What kind of uh, restaurants would we be experiencing there? And do you have any favorite places or things that you like to do when you're on Easter Island? You said you've been there multiple times. The population is fewer, fewer than 8,000. But um, at least before the pandemic, there were around eighty to 100,000 tourists arriving every year. So as you can imagine, there's quite a lot of tourist infrastructure. There's, there's obviously the airport that people arrive in. But there's a huge range of hotels and guest houses, uh, B&Bs. You can even camp if you want a budget. Uh, and there's loads of great restaurants. 
cafes and uh, places places to eat. Um, and it's actually really diverse. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of the um, the typical Rapa Nui dishes that we've talked about, but there's um, you know Easter Island attracts people from all over the world. So there's um, there's a very good uh, Belgian run restaurant, so you can get a good chocolate mousse there, for example. <laughs> you can get um, some of the dishes that you would have on on mainland Chile. You can get things like pasta and pizza because Italian food has traveled absolutely everywhere in the world. Right, right. Um, but really, really, I, I, I always like to focus on, um, focus on the, the local food. The seafood, the fish and the seafood is absolutely excellent. Um, Easter Island is surrounded by one of the world's largest marine reserves. The waters are incredibly rich in um, in fish and seafood. You can you can get things like uh, mahi mahi. Uh, the tuna is excellent. Lobster is absolutely excellent. If you keep an eye out for a type of lobster called uh, rape rape, which is a small version, which is um, which is served particularly on the island, um, you get a lot of great ceviche. You got a lot of great sashimi. One of my favourite snacks, which is great for a packed lunch if you're out on uh, on one of the hikes or if you're visiting one of the Moai sites, are um, uh, tuna empanadas, uh, which are baked or fried. My absolutely my my favourite place to have these on the island is a place called uh, Tia Berta, which is uh, just quite a simple local place. Uh, East Island is expensive. This is one of the less expensive places, and uh, the empanadas are absolutely absolutely delicious from there. Um, another of my uh, favorite places um, and somewhere that really takes advantage of all the delicious tropical fruits that grow on the island is a place called Mi Cafe, which is a tiny little ice cream parlor on the dock and they serve absolutely excellent ice cream. So, um, so at the end of the day, um, it's, 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 it's a nice place to, uh, to, to give yourself a treat at the end of the day. I oh, can't do better than that. Well, Shafik Medji, thanks for being on Destination Eat Drink and getting us pumped up to go to uh, Easter Island, Rapa Nui. Sounds like a great place, and uh, I'm really excited to be there. And thanks again for being on the show this week. Oh, uh, Brent, it was my absolute pleasure. It's, uh, it's always a joy to talk about uh, Easter Island. So uh, hopefully uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the months and years to come, it will be uh, uh, somewhere that uh, a few of the listeners are able to visit. Okay, there you go. I'm telling you, I could talk all day with Shafik. He's such an interesting guy. And you can keep up with Shafik on his website at shafikmedji.com, or I've got a link in the show notes to Shafik's website and the places he's talked about at radiomisfits.com slash DED132. Well, that'll put a bow on this week's show. Next week, we are in Miami, Little Havana for Cubano sandwiches and mojitos. Until then, head over to DestinationEatDrink.com. This week, I posted about the new immersive Van Gogh exhibits that are touring the U.S. this year. Read about that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Moai statue model Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Get your shot. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 